It's time to tumble out of bed and stumble to the kitchen for the Mars in Cancer episode of Imagine That, a podcast for astrology and archetypes. Well, that was different. Hello, and welcome to episode four of Imagine That. I'm your host, Sean Nygaard, here to talk about astrology and archetypes. And you can always find me on the web at imagineastrology.com. Now, I'm calling this episode Mars in Cancer, Make Omelets, Not War. And we'll get to that. But first, I have a couple of quotes. The first is from Carl Jung, who said, It was one of the greatest experiences of my life to discover how enormously different people's psyches are. That's from volume 10 of the Collected Works, my favorite, called Civilization in Transition. And the second quote is from Olga Tokarczuk who says, there are more than enough traits and characteristics in this world for each of us to be richly endowed. I wanted to start with Carl and Olga, because both were born with Saturn in Aquarius, which we just experienced collectively and personally before Saturn moved into Pisces. I also like that Carl Jung was so into astrology and that Olga Tokarczuk wrote a book called Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead, in which the main character is an elderly, eccentric woman whose passions in life are astrology and the poetry of William Blake. And I wonder if this emphasis on difference, which I associate with Saturn in Aquarius, comes from not only their experience in life, but their knowledge of astrology and how uniquely different each person's birth chart is. I bring this up because even though Saturn has moved into Pisces, Pluto is now in Aquarius at zero degrees. And I want to head into this episode keeping in mind that we each bring our own unique experience to our chart placements. So we might consider the next couple of decades a period of deepening into differences and the appreciation of differences. It's also significant that for the first time in years, there are no planets in Capricorn. It's kind of amazing. While recording this episode, the sun has moved from Aries into Taurus, so we've moved from early spring into deep spring, And to place Pluto in Aquarius in this context, I like to imagine the seasons of the soul. Because as the different planets move through the different signs, and the signs are associated with the seasons, we are now in deep spring in the Northern Hemisphere. But somewhere deep in the soul, it's still winter. It's still Aquarius time. And even though it is still winter in Aquarius, it's that period of winter where the light begins to return. 
And on that note, let's talk about Mars in Cancer. Mars has been in Cancer for a little bit, and this episode was originally meant to be a very short bonus episode, maybe seven minutes at the most. But as I was preparing it, it took on a mind of its own. It took on a life of its own. So we're going to use Mars in Cancer to take a broader and deeper look at the sign of Cancer in general. So Mars entered Cancer on March 25th and is staying there until May 20th. Meanwhile, Venus enters Cancer on May 7th until June 5th. Mercury enters Cancer on June 26th until July 10th. And the Sun makes its annual turn through the sign of Cancer beginning on June 21st through July 22nd. We also have Jupiter entering Taurus on May 16th, so we can note that the moon, the planet that rules the sign of Cancer, is exalted in Taurus. So we can keep that in mind, like how I spoke of Venus's exaltation in Pisces when I talked about Saturn in Pisces. We will have the moon in that same kind of situation when Jupiter enters Taurus. So essentially, Mars will take us into talking about the sign of Cancer, and we'll be looking through a lunar lens. Now, I should have known better than to try to do a seven-minute episode that became so much more than that, because it makes me think back to 10th grade, when I read the comments that one of my teachers made on a grade report. This was my violin teacher. I played the violin for many years. So she knew me pretty well. She had observed and commented on how when I really get into something, I give it my all, and it's like I get consumed by it. That just seems to be how it works. I thought this could be a short episode originally, because I simply wanted to read a piece I wrote about 12 years ago called Mars in Cancer, Make Omelets, Not War... And Mars is one of the faster-moving planets. So we'll talk about it and move on. But generally, my approach to astrology is less about what the fast-moving planets are doing currently in the sky than about how they operate in general, in a natal chart, by transit to the natal chart, or in a progressed chart, or in a solar return. If I start paying attention to all of the fast-moving planets in the sky every day, it all seems to get a bit crowded. I think there's a reason why a movie called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once was so heavily awarded at this year's Academy Awards. It's a brilliant movie, but I also think it speaks to the spirit of the times in a very profound way like peak multitasking. When I'm looking at the current sky, I look at the faster-moving planets, but it's really with Jupiter onward. Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto are up to that really interests me. It's the slower-moving planets that end up being the real game-changers. So the emphasis I like is on the natal chart that you and your chart become the home base for gauging how these transits operate 
and keeping in mind that not every current transit in the sky is significant. So keeping all that in mind, what's in store for this episode? Here's the table of contents. First, I'm going to read that article that I wrote over 12 years ago, and that will open up talking about stereotypes versus archetypes. Then I'll talk a little bit about what are called essential dignities, head into some comments via Mars about masculinity, and then consider the nature of Mars in Cancer and the nature of cancer in general, the importance of memory and reflection. It's interesting to me that Jung was born with Mercury and Venus in Cancer, and his autobiography is called Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. And I'll end the episode talking about the moon and lunacy of all things. So here we go. Like I said, this is an article that I wrote over 12 years ago when Mars was moving through Cancer, and I was being playful and making fun of Mars and Cancer to hopefully glean some insight about what this planet in this sign is all about, playing on the fact that Mars is considered to be in fall in the sign of Cancer. Now you learn a thing or two over the years, And looking back on this article then, I realized it's actually a stereotype that I'm making fun of, which I'll say more about. But first, here's Mars in Cancer. Make omelets, not war. So most of this comes from 12 years ago, but I also update and add a couple of things along the way. Part 1. The Man in the Moon Mars's sterling reputation as a strong, manly-muscled warrior god takes a bit of a beating in the shadowed, silvery moonlight of the caring, nurturing, and emotionally oh-so-sensitive sign of cancer. As standard practice, Mars is interested in getting it up, manning up, rising up. Just look at the symbol. If there is an uprising, you can be sure the god Mars is involved. The sign of cancer, however, the crab, is one of the most vulnerable signs, often tremendously open and defenseless, even with its shell, and the downward pull into emotional vulnerability typically proves challenging for Mars. The downward drive is even expressed technically. Mars is considered in his fall in Cancer. Mars wants to be direct and straight to the point, and emotions aren't exactly direct. The man in the moon was never depicted with a sword, was he? See, Mars just isn't the type to offer a comforting squeeze and a warm hug when someone is feeling sad. Feelings? Who cares? Besides, battles are easier to fight during the day, in the light of the sun, rather than in the mysterious and indiscriminating shadows of night. 
Ultimately, the battle for Mars in Cancer is between keeping the tide of emotions in versus letting it all out. Emotions that are held in tightly tend to be released with steely force. Just think of Alanis Morissette, who was born with Mars in Cancer, and her scalding and scathing song, You Oughta Know. Note that Alanis also has a Scorpio moon. Her entire album, Flavors of Entanglement, is a study in Mars in Cancer. With the murky madness, lunar craziness rather than anger, she sings, Now I see the madness in me is brought out in the presence of you. Now I know the madness lives on when you're not in the room. The storytelling of underneath. Look at us break our bonds in this kitchen. Look at us rallying all our defenses. Look at us waging war in our bedroom. And the simmering torch in which she catalogs her burning memories of a former love. I never dreamed I would have to lay down my torch for you like this. She even sings in praise of the vulnerable man. Why won't you lead the rest of your cavalry home? Part 2. The Man with a Pan In the sign more associated with the kitchen than the battlefield, rather than putting up his dukes in war, Mars in Cancer is left to beat eggs, mash potatoes, whip cream, grate cheese, mince meat, and grill chicken. You get all of the basting, beating, thrashing, broiling, boiling, stewing, roasting, poaching, scrambling, creaming, scalding, grating, chopping, searing, and toasting action that Mars loves, but you're carrying an egg whisk rather than an axe. Rather than meeting his opponent with a battering ram, the only thing getting battered is the moist, soft cookie dough. Yum! It's time to trade in the super trooper for the hamburger helper. Yes, it's easy to make fun of Mars in Cancer, and the more you get him boiled, the more he'll just stew in his own juices. In his sign of exaltation, Capricorn, opposite Cancer, Mars is the man with a plan. In Cancer, he is the man with a pan. Make omelets. Not war. We don't need another hero. Incidentally, the song made famous by Tina Turner, We Don't Need Another Hero, was released on July 8, 1985, when the sun in Cancer was conjunct Mars in Cancer. All joking aside, my real point, there is an amazingly constructive side of Mars in Cancer, it's not just in the kitchen, of course, but any creative emotional outlet. I've already mentioned Alanis Morissette. Author Joyce Carol Oates also has Mars in Cancer and wrote, Because it is bitter and because it is my heart, and many other deeply emotional books. 
Stephen King marched into the darkness and managed to take a stand in The Stand, creep the hell out of everyone with The Shining, talk about lunacy, and keep us up all night with It, the best book title ever, in my opinion. And most recently, at the time of writing, he managed to dim all the lights entirely in full dark, no stars. Other powerful expressions of Mars and Cancer include Don McLean. Think of Vincent, Starry, Starry Night. The works of Toni Morrison. Dolly Parton, with her Smoky Mountain memories and her Tennessee homesick blues. Patsy Cline, crazy. Picasso. Naomi Judd. George Lucas and Malcolm X. Also with Mars and Cancer, the now late opera singer Jesse Norman. When I talk about the sixth house in astrology, the house of twilight, which is the joy of Mars, I bring in her rendition of Strauss's Im Abendrot, one of his four last songs. Im Abendrot means in the red of evening, It's that twilight time just after the sun has gone below the horizon, but has not fully set, when the sky can turn 50 shades of red. Not bad for the red planet. While I like to make fun of Mars and Cancer, its depth of emotion and its serious side should never be underestimated. And while Mars and Cancer might be a strange combination any way you look at it, emotions are the name of the game. Keeping them in, letting them out, it's all a challenge. Fights happen, life goes on, much like the ebbing and flowing of the tides. Did I mention that Pat Conroy, author of The Prince of Tides, was born with Mars and Cancer? Rather than a god of war, The nature of Mars and Cancer might be best understood as the Prince of Tides. The key hidden somewhere in the shadows of the moon is to direct the emotions towards something constructive and creative, so that rather than following a recipe for disaster, you stand a chance at a five-star meal. So 12 years ago when I wrote that, I was just having fun playing around, making fun of what happens when the god of war ends up in the sign of cancer. But this time around, I really realized that it's a stereotype that I'm making fun of. The stereotype of Mars as the god of war in the spirit of ancient Greece or ancient Rome. See, a stereotype is an archetype with rigor mortis setting in. It's getting limited and rigid. A stereotype is like an archetype that has grown cold. And to play with it a little bit, the difference between a stereotype and an archetype a little more, if we go back to that song, We Don't Need Another Hero, it's from the movie Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. 
and I just say Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and a large vehicle rumbles past outside my window, like in the apocalyptic setting of the movie. But the motto inside the Thunderdome, where men go to fight, the motto is two men enter, one man leaves. It's a fight to the death. So in that sense, if a stereotype enters the Thunderdome with an archetype, two types enter and one type leaves. It's the archetype that will always leave. The archetype always wins. So we're not sticking to the spirit of the times of Greco-Roman culture, but we're realigning the spirit of the depths with the spirit of our times, the zeitgeist of our times in 2023. And this brings up talk of what are called in astrology essential dignities. This comes out of traditional astrology, where planets have rulership over specific signs, planets are considered to be in detriment in other signs, or exaltation in some signs, or, like Mars and Cancer, considered to be in fall. Of course, the origin of essential dignities is from the time before Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto were discovered. So it's just the traditional seven planets, the Sun through Saturn, that have their placement in this system. Now, I find it fascinating, and I like essential dignities to consider when using astrology as a tool for psychological reflection. So even though modern astrologers assigned Uranus and Neptune and Pluto to rule over certain signs, they don't necessarily fit into the system, the tight system, the organized system, as it exists in traditional astrology. Essential dignities are used to determine a planet's condition. Is this planet in good condition? Is this planet in bad condition? Is this a difficult placement for the planet or an easy placement for the planet? And the general rule in traditional astrology, as Demetra George points out, is the better the planet's condition, the better the outcome. So when Mars, for example, is in Capricorn, the sign of its exaltation, it's considered to be in great condition which suggests a good outcome. When Mars is in fall, in Cancer, it's the opposite. This is not good condition. It suggests a not-so-great outcome. So this is where this notion of Mars in fall, in Cancer, comes from. But I kind of want to wriggle Mars out of the essential dignities and talk about a number of examples where from a psychological perspective, when we're talking about the psyche, when we're talking about the soul, it's not really about the outcome as much as it's worth considering what's incoming via the soul, via the imagination. If we think of astrology and as above, so below, where as above is the heavens above, the movement of the stars and the planets, and so below is life as it's happening on the earth, the as above will always be archetypal. 
And so below will always be life in the spirit of the times. So at the time that essential dignities were imagined, the spirit of the times was centuries and centuries ago, when what it meant to be an archetypal warrior is very different than the spirit of 2023. And I have to consider that it's the spirit of ancient times, the spirit of a different society that gets evoked when talking about essential dignities. Back in ancient Greece or Rome, the so below was what was going on in their culture, in their society, in their times. In ancient Rome, for example, the field of Mars, Mars had his own field for battle practice, was outside of the city. Mars energy was not to be trusted inside the city. The city was the place of civilization, the place of good manners, archetypally speaking, the place of civilized behavior, the place where you walk past a neighbor on the street, nod and say, hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great today. And you go your separate ways instead of taking out a battle axe and duking it out right there. Well, you got to wonder in the United States today about that. But that's actually my point, is something has shifted in the energies of the warrior archetype. It makes me think of the princess archetype and the extraordinary reaction in England in the wake of the death of Princess Diana. I remember Carolyn Mace talking about how possibly it represented the death of the princess archetype, the possibility of the royal archetypes beginning to move their way out of prominence in the psyche, in the collective unconscious. Either way, something is going on with the warrior archetype. So to head back to Mars now, in the context of essential dignities, it makes me wonder if Mars, considered in detriment in Libra, considered in bad condition, is because the battlefield is not the place for diplomacy. A general does not want their soldiers to be breaking out in diplomacy in the middle of the war. This would not result in a good outcome, according to the Book of War. You don't want to be the one waving the white flag. Or for Mars in detriment in Taurus, with the backdrop of an ancient warrior, Taurus is more about a slower pace, stopping to smell the roses in spring, admiring the beautiful colors that nature has to offer, being a little pokey. As far as I understand, a general does not want their warriors picking flowers, admiring the lilacs. Are there even lilacs on a battlefield? So this notion of condition, planetary condition, seems to make sense with the backdrop of a warrior, but in modern times, it seems out of place. And with the advent of depth psychology in the last two centuries, it might do us good to reimagine essential dignities.
So it seems to me in 2023, in the spirit of our times, you can find really good examples of any planet in any sign. In other words, any planet can be powerful in any sign. It doesn't matter what the condition is. I've already mentioned numerous for Mars and Cancer. To mention a few other placements, it's hard to talk about Venus in fall in Virgo when considering Julia Roberts. And Kurt Cobain had the moon in Cancer, the sign of its rulership. Venus exalted in Pisces. Jupiter exalted in Cancer. And he had a very difficult time. Sasha Velour, the winner of season nine of RuPaul's Drag Race, was born with Mars in Cancer and has an extraordinary sense of building community. And while we're at it, I may as well mention RuPaul, who was born with the moon in fall in Scorpio and Mars in fall in Cancer. And I can't look at RuPaul and think that his story is a negative outcome. On Drag Race, RuPaul is affectionately referred to as Mama Ru by contestants. And RuPaul creates a space where people who, who perhaps feel like they don't belong finally find a place where they do. So even though RuPaul was teased mercilessly as a kid for being too emotional and called a sissy, it's RuPaul who recorded a song called Sissy That Walk, bringing a sense of empowerment to the very term that was used to tease him as a kid. Now, all of this talk of Mars and he, he as Mama Ru, he and Sissy That Walk, it brings up the question of masculinity. How do we talk about this? How do we talk about Mars and masculinity? And this is where I turn to Carl Jung. I really like what he says, again, in the volume 10 of the collected works called Civilization in Transition, a title which might just be the headline of our times. In paragraph 260, he says, masculinity means knowing what one wants and doing what is necessary to achieve it. Once this lesson has been learned, it is so obvious that it can never again be forgotten without tremendous psychic loss. The first part of that again is masculinity means knowing what one wants and doing what is necessary to achieve it. So when Jung says this, he's not talking about men, males, or even gender, really. He's speaking of the soul from a psychological perspective, what is going on before literal gender comes into it. He's talking about what's going on in the psyche, which is why he mentions the tremendous psychic loss, if this is forgotten. In 2023, gender is becoming increasingly fluid. So if we look at Mars, a masculine planet, and keep in mind this notion of knowing what one wants and doing what is necessary to achieve it, instead of looking at Mars in Cancer as being in fall, in not very good condition, 
because it seems he's not living up to his reputation as a warrior god, I think it's important to step back and simply ask, what is the nature of Mars in Cancer? What does it mean to stay true to that nature? I mean, Mars in Cancer is the Mars that takes care. Mars in Cancer protects. But rather than get locked into key words or symbols, how does Mars in Cancer show up? And it's on that note that I want to mention that I come from a family with Mars in Cancer in abundance. Numerous people over at least three generations were born with Mars in Cancer. So even though I don't have Mars in Cancer, it's almost a family signature. But in preparing this episode, I remember when I was a kid playing with Star Wars figures. Loved Star Wars figures. Now, Star Wars figures always came with a weapon, whether it was a lightsaber, a gun, some other kind of tool that served as a weapon. I was never allowed to play with the Star Wars figures until somebody else opened up the package and removed the weapon and then gave me the figure. I didn't think twice about it. It was like I had to learn to imagine playing with these toys creating scenarios with these figures that didn't involve weapons. Of course, I'd seen the movies, loved the movies, still do, but I had to tell different stories when using these figures. I also think of how growing up, one of my mom's cousin's sisters, who has since passed away, was an artist and she created film strips and little musicals that I watched over and over and over again on one of those machines that that played film strips. And one of my favorites, though I can't remember the exact title, it was something like The Red Ant and the Green Ant, or The Red Ant and the Blue Ant. I can't remember, but it was about two ants who were on opposing sides in a war, and they happened to meet in the trenches one-on-one, and they started talking. They got to know each other a little bit. And in this downtime, not in battle, one of them started singing a song that was one of the key songs from his culture, from the folklore of his culture, only to learn that the other ant knew that song because it was equally important in his culture and they both could sing the same song together. Now, that was my mom's cousin's sister, who was born with Mars in Taurus. And these film strips were full of wild, vibrant colors. But back to the nature of Mars in Cancer, with the weapons for my Star Wars figures being taken away, which I didn't really mind. We think of In Praise of the Vulnerable Man, Sissy That Walk, The Prince of Tides. I go back to The Prince of Tides and the song that Barbara Streisand sings in the ending credits. With cancer as a sign of belonging, she sings Places That Belong to You, which includes these lines. Somehow I'll never let go of the memories. Something always seems to remind me of how it was, of what it was, when it was, 
all there was. And because in the movie there's a relationship she's in that doesn't work out, the character that she's playing, the song says, Someday, when someone else's arms are around us, when time has put some distance between us, the years will kindly show how memories come and go. They ebb and flow like the tide. So this brings us to cancer and the powerful connection cancer has with memory. All of the water signs, cancer, Scorpio, and Pisces, have some kind of connection with memory because the element of water is connected with memory. This is archetypally true, but science also knows this. And if you want to explore more about the nature of that, there's a great book called The Hidden Messages in Water by Masaru Emoto. But in looking at additional examples, I was thinking of Chris Hemsworth, the actor who plays Thor in the Marvel movies. He was born with Mars in Cancer and Venus in Virgo. And I go back to trying to reconcile Chris Hemsworth with Mars in Cancer and Venus in Virgo, these planets considered in their fall. But if we simply look at the nature of the planet in the sign, you know, he's great at playing Thor in the Marvel movies. And when I do something like this, where I'm going to make a move from human being Chris Hemsworth to movie star playing Thor, it's a move into psychic life, the life of the psyche. It's like a move from the spirit of the times, where we are human beings being human, and I'm moving it into the spirit of the depths, where we have access to our soul selves, to our deeper selves, and to options that embed us in stories and myths with timeless motifs. So when we ask, what is the nature of Mars and Cancer? And look to the movie Thor. Of course, a Norse god doesn't have a birth chart because he's timeless. So I'm looking at why it is that Chris Hemsworth is so good at playing Thor. Mars in Cancer somehow comes through in the Thor that he plays. Young Thor is eager to fight, eager to show off. And against his father's orders, against Odin's orders, he ends up battling the frost giants, taunting the frost giants, and ending a long period of peace that was established after a very tumultuous time between Asgard and the frost giants. So Odin steps in and reestablishes peace when things get out of hand, and Odin punishes his son. And Odin says to Thor, you're thinking only as a warrior. And he removes all power from Thor's hammer, Mjolnir. He breaks the connection between Thor and his hammer. And that connection would only return when Thor remembered what it means to be worthy of carrying Mjolnir. And then Thor is exiled to Earth without his godly powers. We have Thor as a human, meeting Jane and others. And along the way, through these experiences in the movie, 
he remembers those parts of his nature that he'd forgotten in his eagerness to jump into battle with the frost giants, to be the warrior who wins the war. And having remembered his nature, Mjolnir flies back into his hands and he's able to return to Asgard. So talking about Chris Hemsworth playing Thor, weaving in what Thor gets up to in the movie, and we're watching Chris Hemsworth, it seems he's so good at playing Thor because as an actor, he's able to connect with those deeper emotions that we find in what we call Mars and Cancer. Thor returns in several other movies, but I think it's significant that his particular nature is firmly established in the first movie. Now, for me, that movie, Thor, is my favorite of all of the Marvel movies so far. And it has a different feel emotionally than the other movies do, to me at least. And so it didn't surprise me to learn that its director, Kenneth Branagh, was also born with Mars in Cancer. He brought a palpable emotional resonance to the movie. And if we stick with the silver screen for a little bit, and Kenneth Branagh, if you haven't seen his movie Belfast, it's a masterclass in Mars in Cancer. He directed and wrote Belfast and considers it his most personal movie. And it tells the story of a young boy living in a neighborhood in Belfast a Protestant area in which Catholics living peacefully in the neighborhood became targets of violence. I want to mention one scene, because it's not just centered on the boy, it's the boy and his family. And this isn't really a spoiler, but near the end, his grandfather says to the boy, You know who you are, don't you? Your buddy from Belfast 15 where everybody knows you, and your pop looks out for you, and your mummy looks out for you, your daddy looks out for you, your granny looks out for you, your brother looks out for you, and the whole family looks out for you. And wherever you go, and whatever you become, that'll always be the truth. And that thought will keep you safe. It'll keep you happy. Will you remember that for me? Like I said, it's a masterclass in Mars in Cancer. Now, as another example of this connection between Mars in Cancer and memory, but just cancer in general and its connection to memory, Nobel laureate Toni Morrison was born with Mars in Cancer, Pluto in Cancer, and Jupiter in Cancer. I'm wondering if I can mention her in every episode of this podcast. But I think in particular of her book, Beloved, because as an author who took great care with her words, with her language, and her fierce intelligence, to get absorbed into a Toni Morrison novel is to be transported to whatever world she is creating. And when she talks about the decision to go back in history and inhabit the time period of slavery, to remember that time period for years, the years it would take 
to write that book. She says, the terrain slavery was formidable and pathless. To invite readers and myself into the repellent landscape, hidden but not completely, deliberately buried but not forgotten, was to pitch a tent in a cemetery inhabited by highly vocal ghosts. In trying to make the slave experience intimate, I hoped the sense of things being both under control and out of control would be persuasive throughout, that the order and quietude of everyday life would be violently disrupted by the chaos of the needy dead, that the Herculean effort to forget would be threatened by memory desperate to stay alive. That attitude going into writing the book, the thoughtfulness of her approach, and her ability to bring readers back to that time period and feel it, that's the power of Mars and Cancer. Now I want to go back again to The Prince of Tides, but this time to the book, written by Pat Conroy, set in the South, and telling the story of a very complicated family, the Wingo family, which includes a set of twins, Tom and Savannah. In the movie, Barbara Streisand plays the therapist who brings Tom Wingo to New York City where one of her patients was Savannah, who is now unconscious in a hospital. And she needs Tom to be her memory. The therapist, Susan Lowenstein, needs Tom to be Savannah's memory so she can figure out what's going on. The movie tells the story adequately, but in the book, you get so much more rich detail. Pat Conroy evokes the South so powerfully. And what it was like for these kids to grow up in a family where the father was a shrimper. I just want to read a couple of short passages in the context of the sign of cancer. The father depends on shrimping to make a living to support his family. But one season they experience cold like they never had before, including four inches of snow. In the Atlantic, the temperature of the water began to drop below 45 degrees Fahrenheit, and the shrimp my father had a rendezvous to catch the following spring began to die. They perished in countless billions, and news of their decimation would go unreported until the shrimpers of Carolina all came up with empty nets in March. The shrimp did not return to the inlets and creeks in the innumerable teeming shoals. They seemed to come singly or in pairs, and the gravid females flooding the marshes with their eggs carried with them the awesome responsibility of the preservation of the species as they urged themselves toward the spawning creeks. It was the year that the bank repossessed 17 shrimp boats 
and sold them at auction. In two weeks of relentless, back-breaking shrimping from daylight to darkness, my father's boat pulled up only 40 pounds of shrimp. The sea was barren. The fish and seabirds behaved strangely. There was insufficiency and famine in the tides. For the first time in modern memory, shrimp became a rare and prized delicacy on Colleton tables. Colleton is the town where this is set. And I wanted to read that in particular because we start to see the connection that cancer has with nourishment and how when he comments that the sea was barren, that there was famine in the tides, it's a reminder that this is highly unusual because the sea is a place of nourishment. It's not a place of famine. It's not intended to be barren. It makes me think of Monica Domino, um, the wonderful astrologer, who has said that cancer is the sign of maximum growth. It's the sign that begins at the summer solstice, when the sun is highest in the sky, and everything that started to bud and started to grow at the beginning of spring have grown. That's when you see the abundance of crops. In my life, I've done many drives down from Minneapolis to Chicago. When in the Midwest, you see the incredible cornfields. But to bring it back to cancer and water and seafood, in this passage from the Prince of Tides, this disruption of the natural cycle, a natural cycle of life, speaks to me as a reminder of how the sign cancer carries with it the deep memory of what nourishes us, what nourishes our soul. Now, in the book, as this problem deepens of not having the shrimp, not being able to support the family, it continues, Luke, Savannah, and I, I being Tom Wingo, the narrator of the book, Luke, Savannah, and I began a ritual of rising at five in the morning and setting a string of crab pots in the river. We would empty the traps of blue crabs, spilling them into a large barrel centered in the boat and baiting the traps with fresh mullet and trash fish. We began with 20 traps and by summer's end, we were pulling out 50 along 20 miles of river and creek. Because we were new on the river, we had to respect the rights of the commercial crabbers and set out pots in remote channels far from Colleton proper. We ranged far and wide throughout the county, leaving the wire traps as the signature of our passing. Tying white floats to a rope, we would haul the baited traps into the advancing or withdrawing tides. You could follow us from float to float over the wildest, most desolate stretches of our county. At first, we worked slowly, and our movements were inexpert and wasteful. But we grew into our task, learned the rhythms of the work, and developed an expertise based on our initial mistakes. In the first month, it took us 10 minutes to empty a trap of crabs and to bait it again for the next tide. But in the second month, 
the same operation took us less than two minutes per trap. It was a matter of perfecting the technique of crabbing. We refined our movements. We learned grace and the economy of precise gestures. We learned that crabbing, like everything else, had its own native beauty, its own properties of dance. We broke even the first month because all our profits went into buying new traps. In the second month, we paid the note on our father's shrimp boat. The older crabbers watched our progress as we brought our catch to be weighed. In the beginning, we were the object of their derision and jokes. By August, we were initiates into their brotherhood. They would gather around to admire Savannah's rough and calloused hands. They gave sound advice. They taught us the mysteries of their rugged craft. Then, after we had mastered the essentials, they praised us by their silence. We were born to the river, and they expected us to be good at what we were born to do. I love that passage because it speaks to stepping in when shrimping was not possible. The kids turned to crabbing to help support the family. And I think back to what I was saying about Mars as a god of war, Mars in battle. And what a contrast this is, perfecting the technique of crabbing. We learned that crabbing, like everything else, had its own native beauty, its own properties of dance. What a wonderful way to speak of Mars and Cancer. So now to take another step back, looking at that broad question of what is the nature of cancer, we start to really see the role that memory plays, how memory is tied to reflection. And if we're talking about reflection, we can talk about mirrors. And at the archetypal roots of all of this, we have the simple fact that mirrors are made of silver. And here I want to bring in an essay by James Hillman. This will take us into the section about lunacy. So my original idea to just read my article and have a very short bonus episode of the podcast got sidetracked because I had the crazy idea to revisit this essay that I remember reading from Hillman from his book, Alchemical Psychology. It's a volume of his uniform edition of collected essays. And this volume is all of his essays about alchemy and alchemical psychology. And in the book is the essay called Silver and the White Earth. Now, I remember reading this years ago. I can look at my hard copy of the book and see underlines and stars in the margin and double lines in the margins all over the place, exclamation marks, because it's a remarkable essay. 
I only remembered one thing of it years later. And the one thing I remember is that Hillman reminds us that the brain is the silver organ as the heart is gold. Now, with cancer being ruled by the moon and silver being the metal of the moon in the same way that gold is the metal of the sun, I wanted to revisit this essay only to discover that this time reading it was exhausting. It's such a complicated essay. Turns out to be much longer than I ever remembered it. It's got 162 footnotes, and every page is packed with Hillman at his best. You can find in that essay more archetypal information and facts about silver than you maybe ever thought possible. You learn a ton about alchemy. And he weaves everything together in that way that when you're reading Hillman, it's like you're breathing metaphor. He brings the metaphors alive. And it's particularly potent in this essay. And it's not an astrological essay. He's not speaking astrologically, but because Hillman, as a depth psychologist, did use astrology as a tool for psychological reflection. Hillman talking about silver and the moon can inform us about this planet that rules the sign of cancer. So he evokes silver, the metal of the moon, And this relates to a stage in alchemy called the albedo. And he says that the terms silver, albedo, whiteness, and luna, the moon, tend to signify each other. He says again and again, gold and silver are spoken of in one breath, the two perfect metals, the king and the queen. Now, with silver as the metal of the moon, we can shift our question from what is the nature of cancer to what is the nature of the moon? How can silver help us understand the moon? And this is where Hillman's essay, Silver and the White Earth, is pretty extraordinary. I highly recommend checking it out at your own risk. I like the kind of challenge that it presents. But half the time, I don't even know what he's talking about. But that is one of the things that I love about reading Hillman. I understand so much more about the essay now than I did years ago when I first read it. And to go back to Hillman and to go back to Hillman and reread Hillman proves to be quite rewarding. Reading him takes me back to my college days. When I went to college, I was away from home for the first time. The college had a movie night the first week I was there, and they showed Dead Poets Society. So that kind of set the tone for my college years. And on a whim, I decided to take a philosophy class. So nothing in my background that I was aware of would ever suggest that I should take a philosophy class. But I did, and I discovered that I was not only interested in philosophy, I loved reading all of these different philosophers, but I was also good at it. So I took more classes, and the professors really appreciated the work that I was putting into the classes. I loved reading, for example, Plato, 
The first paper I ever wrote was about Plato and the form of beauty. I didn't know people philosophized about beauty. I loved reading Nietzsche because it was so complicated. And I didn't know what he was saying half the time, but I could figure out just enough that it stayed interesting. So it was really fun to write papers, and I wondered how these different philosophers came up with their philosophy. And in particular, what I liked on the exams of one professor, he had us argue philosophers against each other, because he wanted to know if we really understood this stuff. It sounds like a joke. Plato and Nietzsche walk into a bar together, or walk into the Thunderdome together. But that's what it was like. And I think I relate to Hillman's approach to archetypal psychology in particular, because my approach in college to studying philosophy and everything else that I studied could be described as scholarly, but not academic. I had fun writing the papers and writing the essays. And on these formal papers and formal exams, I would include little parenthetical comments of my own that the professors seemed to really enjoy. I would do that in my papers too, and the professors would comment in the margins with little exclamation marks or smiley faces. That was back before emojis existed, but never mind. But the professors, while really enjoying my work, were also quite frustrated because I barely said a word in any of the classes. And one of my papers earned one of my favorite comments ever from any teacher. I still have the essay, The Blue Book, that I saved. I mentioned this in this podcast episode about cancer and the moon and memory, because this is one of my favorite memories that I've saved in a notebook for all time. I wrote a paper on Aristotle, and I also elaborated through other philosophers. And the professor gave me an A and wrote, you show competent understanding of Aristotle's position on what can be known, and of Plato's too, and you put this exquisitely into your own words and with your own examples. I still wish you might participate more in class discussion, parentheses, and not just spend your time doodling there, exclamation mark, and parentheses, period. And he always typed up his comments on exams. So he gave me an, an essay grade of A, but kept me at a B plus for the course grade because I just listened and I doodled because that is what helped me learn. So in the way that I loved dialoguing philosophers with each other, learning that this is how this philosopher thought of the world, this is how they saw the world, who would have known that years later when I read Carl Jung, when I read Carolyn Mace, when I read Liz Green, and when I read James Hillman, not for any class, but because I found them interesting, I could start doing the same thing. So I really love the challenge that Hillman presents in his essays. So going back to the moon and silver, Hillman notes that for photography, silver is the essential metal for fixing light so it can strike a picture. For psychology, no silver, no image. No image, no reflection. So he's linking silver with psychological reflection. And this is what's going to help us, believe it or not, head into this 
final section of the podcast called Lunacy. Remember, what is the nature of the moon? In one word, it's lunacy. But what does that mean? We know it's got Luna right there, and Luna is the moon. We all know that full moons have a reputation for things getting a little bit crazy. And so far, we've heard this hinted at with the Alanis Morissette song Madness, Crazy by Patsy Cline, The Shining by Stephen King, and hinted at the very start of the episode, Nine to Five by Dolly Parton, It's Enough to Drive You Crazy If You Let It. The music world is full of songs about craziness. Let's go crazy. Crazy in love. Crazy little thing called love. I'm crazy for you. Nobody makes me crazy like you do. It's a mad world. Mama, he's crazy. And crazy on you. We hear this a lot. And Hillman, in his essay, takes such great care such thoughtfulness, and there is actually a step-by-step approach that leads him to talking about lunacy, and it makes so much sense. Because I think we know when singers sing about crazy in those songs, it's not a medical diagnosis. It's a part of life. It's not quite referring to mental health. And if you listened to my episode about Saturn in Pisces. I talked about melancholy. Now, Hillman has talked about depression as melancholy without the gods, which is to say depression is what happens when you're caught in the spirit of the times without a connection to the spirit of the depths. Depression is melancholy without that connection to the timeless. And in that same way, Hillman refers to insanity. He doesn't say it quite this way, but it's what he means, is that insanity is lunacy without the gods. So in the same way that melancholy is linked with Saturn, and Saturn's metal is lead, lunacy is linked with the moon and the metal silver. So here, lunacy is not a medical diagnosis any more than crazy is in those songs. When the Judds sing, Mama, he's crazy, it's not a medical diagnosis. Hillman makes a pun in his essay that this is psychologic. It's psychologic. It's psychological. So if we're opening up the archetypal realm which Hillman is doing through alchemy and we're doing through astrology and the imagination. Instead of lunacy being a medical diagnosis, it's more about the silvering of the soul, which for Hillman is the awakening of psychic life, the awakening of imagination on its own terms. It's bringing in images like photography does, backed by silver. It's images rather than literalness. It's not the medical model, but rather the poetic model. And I think Hillman took such great care with the essay and went to such extraordinary lengths 
painstaking lengths, exhausting lengths, well, on the reading side of things, because he's not only explaining to us and showing us how lunacy awakens the poetic basis of mind, he's taking us there, he's doing it. He's taking us out of our minds into the lunar mind. And moreover, to really inhabit the moon, to live on and in the moon, is to embrace the poetic basis of mind, which is essentially where archetypal psychology lives. It is the archetypal realm of images. So when Patsy Cline sings, crazy, I'm crazy for feeling so lonely, I'm crazy for feeling so blue. I'm crazy for trying and crazy for crying, and I'm crazy for loving you. This is the kind of lunacy that Hillman is talking about. She's reflecting. She's imagining. Again, it's not a medical diagnosis. Hillman takes lunacy and returns it to the poets. The poets of the soul, like Patsy Cline. Now, in astrology, we talk about how the moon reflects the sun's light. And I guess even that's how you understand the the nature of the moon outside of astrology from a scientific perspective, is that the moon reflects the sun's light. So here's the light of the sun, and here's the moon reflecting that light. But Hillman makes a very important point. He says, silver does not come after gold, but precedes it. So he's made the connection between the moon and images, silver and images, silver and mirrors and reflecting. I use movies a lot to talk about astrology and archetypes, and I'm referencing the silver screen. So Hillman says silver does not come after gold, but precedes it. So images have their own hardness, their innate gleam and ring. They are not reflections of the world, but are the light by which we see the world. That might be a tricky one. Further, he says, in alchemical soul making, gold is necessarily preceded by silver. This means that gold comes out of silver. Red comes from white, sun comes from moon, brighter awareness from lunacy. Let me say that part again. This means that gold comes out of silver, sun from moon, brighter awareness from lunacy. And if this kind of sounds backwards, Hillman points out that it's kind of the gold rush nature of the West the rush to gold that skips over the moon, that skips over silver, that skips over lunacy, which Hillman is advocating as a very important and essential stage and root of soul-making. But astrologically, it makes perfect sense. It doesn't sound backwards at all. And we kind of already know this, because all planets move through the sign of Cancer, ruled by the moon, before they enter Leo, ruled by the sun. 
Now, keeping in mind that the moon moves quickly, it's the fastest moving planet. It makes contact with every other planet in the course of one month, with month, of course, being a moon word. So if you imagine Mars moving through Cancer, ruled by the moon, while the moon is making its way around the zodiac, making contact with every planet, moving through every sign, and moving through the phases too, the moon's going to be new. The moon's going to be in its first quarter phase. It's going to be in its gibbous phase. It's going to be a full moon. It begins to disseminate, ends up in the balsamic phase before it's new again. So the moon is moving quickly. It's contacting every planet. It's moving through its different phases. In the words of Dolly Parton again, it's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. So all of this is going on while planets are moving through Cancer, and then they arrive in sun-ruled Leo. They arrive full of lunar life. That movement of the moon is the awakening and the movement and the ebb and flow, not just of the tides, not just of memories, but it's the nature of psychic life. It's the root of psychic life. So when planets arrive in Leo, ruled by the sun... It's like your solar self, the sun, becomes a reflection of the moon, not the other way around, and your life becomes a reflection of your soul. This is why Hillman is advocating for lunacy, and I'm right there behind him. So we can go back. This is the brilliance of Patsy Cline singing crazy or Alanis Morissette singing madness. And in fact, most, if not all, of the examples that I've used draw far more on psychic life than they do with the outcome of events. So when Patsy Cline sings, I go out walking after midnight out in the moonlight, just like we used to do, I'm always walking after midnight searching for you. This is her psychic life. She's bringing us into her psychic life. When she sings, sweet dreams of you, things I know can't come true. Again, she's bringing us into psychic life. She knows it can't come true, but this is lunacy. This is the nature of the moon. It's the first reality. And when I read Hillman, I know that he's taking me to that place to that place of psychic reality. Now, if you listened to my Pluto in Aquarius episode called Stay Awake, I can actually bring this into something very relevant for the astrology of our times, this lunacy nature of the moon. That dynamic from Mary Poppins about stay awake, singing a lullaby to the children, all about staying awake. The revolution of Pluto in Aquarius, that shift I described from the period of enlightenment, shining light on everything, it was solar light that was shining on everything. And the French Revolution shifted all of that, trying to work with it at the same time. But the advent of the Romantic era is so powerful because it was this shift, the awakening of psychic life. Not just shining light on the external world, 
but the emergence of archetypal lunacy in the wake of the Enlightenment. So when John Ruskin from the Romantic era says the imagination is never governed, it is always the ruling and divine power, this is what Hillman is after in his essay. It's to restore the order of things where the sun comes from the moon, not the other way around. Our solar selves are a reflection of our soul. So this time period with Pluto in Aquarius and Saturn in Pisces, with Pluto activating the Leo-Aquarius axis, and Saturn charting his course through the waters of the imagination in Pisces. It's why when I teach Saturn in Pisces, my approach is more like this quote from the author of The Little Prince, whose name I can never pronounce. He said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. Start with psychic life is what he's saying. Awaken the soul. Now, I haven't done the astrology of this, but just going through the preparation of this episode, going through the recording of it, remembering my days in college, taking philosophy classes and writing exams and essentially bringing different philosophers into the Thunderdome to see who would come out. I was out to dinner the other night with a friend of mine talking about this episode, talking about working through this. And I said to her, so today when I was on the treadmill, I was listening to Def Leppard. And then I continued talking, but it became apparent that anything I said after the words Def Leppard fell on deaf ears. So she stopped me and she said, hang on a second. Did you say you were listening to Def Leppard? And I was like, yeah. And I don't know why it is. I guess it comes as a surprise that I listen to Def Leppard. I guess I just don't talk about it very much. But one of the reasons I was listening to Def Leppard isn't just because they're great songs. But when I listen to Hysteria or Love Bites, there's a quality of the production that captures me. And you'll see why I'm telling this story. It's like the way the songs sound, Def Leppard in the 80s. It's like you can listen to it in your car, but it feels like you're in an arena. It's a big sound. And it's a particular sound. And it's particular because it's produced by Robert Mutt Lang. He was the producer behind the three biggest Def Leppard albums in the 80s. But my story doesn't stop there, because what's the point? I've just been reflecting a lot lately, on the treadmill listening to particular music, on what makes Mutt Lang such a great producer. Such clean sounds, such clean recordings, such well-arranged productions. It sounds like you're in an arena because everything is so well-placed in the production, in the recording, in the mixing of it. And if you listen to an album by The Cars from the 80s called Heartbeat City, it sounds like it could be a Def Leppard album. Why? Because it's produced by Mutt Lang. If you listen to one of the three powerhouse global smash hit albums by Shania Twain, 
it often sounds like it could be a Def Leppard album. And it's because it was produced by Mutt Lang, who at the time Shania Twain was married to. And there's all kinds of other songs like this, too. It's why Lady Gaga's song, You and I, sounds so different from all of her other songs. But it sounds like it could be a Def Leppard song. Why? Because it's produced by Mutt Lang. He's got a signature sound. I also found it curious, you know, reflecting this time, that he must have a thing with cars because it's not just that he produced an album with the cars. It has a song called Drive, which again, even though it's a ballad, the song Drive by the Cars sounds like it could be sung by Shania Twain in the same way as her song The Woman in Me Needs the Man in You. It's, it's got the same signature, even though the cars are still the cars and Shania Twain is still Shania Twain, bringing something different to those productions. But Billy Ocean has a song called Get Out of My Dreams, Get Into My Car. And Shania Twain has the song In My Car, I'll Be the Driver. And there's others, but Mutt Lang seems to have a thing about cars. Now, this is one of the things that I love about music production If you listen to the classical crossover albums of Sarah Brightman, they're all produced by Frank Peterson, except one. Frank Peterson brings a signature sound into his music productions, whatever the artist he's working with. And the one time in her classical crossover career, Sarah Brightman worked with a different producer, the album has a different sound. But what I'm talking about is why listening to a Sarah Brightman classical crossover album is like listening to an album by the group Gregorian, which aren't really known in the United States, but they're pretty famous in Europe. They're produced by Frank Peterson. This is the same as classical composers. If you listen to anything by Rossini, you know you're listening to Rossini. If you listen to Mozart, you know you're listening to Mozart. There was an album series in the 90s, maybe, called Mozart for Your Mind, because they figured out that listening to Mozart improved your mind. There isn't a series called Beethoven for the Mind, because Beethoven's a whole different character altogether. There might be more Beethoven for the heart. When you're listening to Handel, He brings a kind of dignified, regal, glorious quality to his music. So my point in talking about all of this is that that comes from psychic life. That comes from being engaged with the soul, with psychic life. This is what Mutt Lang's soul brings to the table. This is what Mozart brings to the table. And this is what makes Mozart different from Beethoven. It's what makes Plato different from Nietzsche. And I feel I can start to really appreciate those quotes that I started this episode with and why Jung said it was one of the greatest pleasures of his life to discover how different people's psyches are. So to wind our way out of this episode... It began with simply talking about Mars and cancer, brought in the difference between stereotypes and archetypes, 
and then looked at essential dignities. It's perhaps this connection with psychic life, especially in the modern era, that essentially is able to bring dignity to any planet in any sign. It's interesting to me that on the timeline of traditional astrology, things basically end just before the discovery of Uranus. And once Uranus was discovered, and Neptune was discovered, and Pluto was discovered, they align with the advent of depth psychology, the emergence of depth psychology. Like it's a different way of approaching things. Like modern astrology in the modern era takes a different approach to things. I think of how ancient Greece had a deep connection to the collective unconscious and how different that is here in 2023, where our world has a profound connection to collective consciousness. We have an awareness of the world unheard of in ancient times. We have pictures of the earth from space because of social media, because of the news, We know it's happening in places all around the world. So Hillman advocating for lunacy is to reestablish that connection, that poetic basis of mind, which is essentially to live intimately connected with the unconscious, which is intimately connected to the imagination and the nature of the moon. And on that note, I have one more story because I would be amiss if in an episode of Mars in Cancer, I didn't mention the late, great Jesse Norman one more time. I had the honor of meeting this extraordinary woman, this extraordinary performer, a few times in my life. The first time I saw a recital for her is a story for another time. It was a life-changing event. But a few years ago, before the pandemic, My older brother was the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Oberlin, and he asked if I wanted to come out and visit because their commencement speaker that year was Jesse Norman, and he knew how much I love her, so I didn't hesitate to say yes, and I was thrilled to learn that I could go to a reception and meet Jesse Norman once again. And I had one of the front rows to her commencement speech that day out on the lawn at Oberlin, There was Jesse Norman on stage. I believe at the time, Saturn in Sagittarius was squaring Neptune in Pisces. And I was thinking about Saturn's reality and Neptune's reality, the reality of the imagination with Neptune. And Jesse Norman, who was in a wheelchair at the time, sat on that stage addressing the graduating class of Oberlin and said the exploration of your own imagination might just be your real life's work. And with that, thank you for listening. And I want to say it's really wonderful meeting so many of you who have listened to the podcast and signed up for a reading. It's really great being able to meet you and connect with you. If you would like a reading, you can find me at imagineastrology.com. If you have any questions, it might be fun to collect questions and do a question and answer episode of the podcast at some point. 
just let me know through the contact page on my website. And until next time, this is Sean Nygaard with Imagine That, a podcast for astrology and archetypes. Oh,